Transmorpho podcast, Chasmosaurian Ceratopsians in disguise. I'm John Conway, I'm with Darren Nash, and together we are the Tetrapod Cats. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, just returned from the Lyme Readers Fossil, Fe- Fossil Festival, it's obviously been going on, it's been going on for something like eight or nine years, which I didn't know, it's actually the first time I've been, and um, yeah, three days of uh, paleontologically and uh, geologically themed um, events, there's like talks and uh, uh, tours in the surrounds and there's like a giant um uh marquee thing with like loads of loads of stands loads of uh, representation from museums and different institutions and stuff and and um as a as someone with a special interest in mesozoic marine reptiles of course i went there with my friends and colleagues from university of Southampton to look at uh new ichthyosaur stuff and collect data and uh, catch up with people and yeah it was yeah it was really good fun do you see anything interesting there well, I spent a lot of time looking at gulls, which uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing at all to do with the fossil festival, but they're so awesome. And uh, if you've seen on Tetrapod Zoology, the, uh, the Horace, the mobile interactive touring uh, pliosaur exhibit, which I, which I was quite taken with, I was actually leaning on a promenade, looking out across the sort of this car park area that's near the water there, and then realised that just underneath me was this like seven metre long <laughs> robotic pliosaur. Like, what the hell is that? It's um something uh, a team of um, like uh, theatrical people and actors and 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 art and artists combined to to make, and it's a you know pretty impressive piece of outreach, basically teaching kids about a bit, a bit about Jurassic history, but um, but it is it's based on its construction was inspired by the discovery of the Weymouth Bay pliosaur skull, which is that enormous, fantastic pliosaurus skull that you would have seen at the Dorset County Museum in Dorchester, two point two point six meters long or two point four meters long, um, soon to be published in Plos One, and Horace, this pliosaur is was inspired by by the, the discovery of that although i've learned that there's a little bit of sour grapes in the the funding of that there was substantial uh council funding for the construction of horace whereas there wasn't any <laughs> money went into the the study of the the actual pliosaur skull the specimen itself <laughs> but well yeah, that's that's yeah, the way these go. things go but um but yeah 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 i mean I'm really into it we're into ichthyosaurs at the moment so it's fantastic to see some new and exciting specimens and some products are going to come out of that um I, I wanted to ask: Is the is the pliosaur Horace? Is that what it's called? Horace, yeah. Yes. Is it is it good? Is it good? Model? No, 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 no. It's a cartoon. Yeah. It's like oh, a, it's, it's a cartoon. A, it's a cartoon pliosaur. So it's got it's got giant spherical yellow eyes, and it's got enormous fat teeth that are probably like I don't know thirty centimeters around the base. And it, it, it's a, it's a cartoon animal, but uh, oh, but yeah, ch- check out the pictures. There's a few there's a few pictures on um, on Tetrapod Zoology. To give you a you know, well, you can see what it looks like. And it's got a cinema in its belly, and kids go inside it and watch some little movie. And it's basically like a carnival float. It's like obviously built on a um, a car chassis or a truck or something. Oh, I see. Yeah. Not chassis. It's like a built on a platform. The base yeah. of it, the base of it's a car, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Chassis but, right, isn't it? Yes. Uh, I don't know. I thought yeah, chassis was like, well. <laughs> <laughs> Tangent alert. Um, yeah, other than that, yeah. Uh, um, Aubrey Roberts, my excellent friend who works on the, the um, uh, uh, Jurassic... Uh, ichthyosaurs of Svalbard. She gave a talk. Sam Bennett works at the Natural History Museum on ichthyosaurs. He he gave a talk as well. And um, yeah, we went to the the Lyme Regis uh, Museum, caught up with their, checked out their new uh, Temnodontosaurus and ichthyosaurus specimens, and saw a Dimorphodon, which you yeah. do every time you go to the Lyme Regis Museum, of course. But uh, a yeah, different one every time. The same one. <laughs> no, the same one. <laughs> They've got this. It's um. Yeah, this like partial snout of a, a dimorphodon that's uh, never been written up, and it's potentially—I think I'm right in saying—so it's meant to be a new, a new taxon. Hmm. But, mm. Yeah. Uh, is that it for Lyme Regis then? Well, I could just talk more crap, but I think that'll do. That's. Uh... <laughs> 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 it's on te- everything. All my thoughts are already on Tedgeboard Zoology. I must have missed this article. Mm. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, obviously I didn't read it because I didn't see the big cartoon. Um, it's very memorable. You'd remember Horace. it had you seen it. Yes. Yeah, Horace. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I must have missed the article. Um, what are we going to talk about this this week? Uh, rooks. Uh, rooks. The the crows. Yes. Well, th- this was another. This was a spur of the moment. Uh, speedily done Tetrapod's Orgy article that I uh, did to just get something new out uh, yesterday. And um, uh, yeah, if, if you go anywhere in the British countryside, you know, particularly like farmland, and um, I always see a lot of them when I go to Marwell Wildlife, a local, local zoo, the wildlife centre place. And, uh, you know, there's millions of rooks there. You spend more, well, I spend more time looking at rooks than I do at, you know, tigers and giraffes and stuff. And, uh, <laughs> They're not only are they like fascinating, they get up to loads of hilarious little social escapades and lots of interesting postures and things they're doing. Um, but also they're just they're just really weird. I mean, crows are corvids are one of those groups of animals that we take for granted. They're pretty familiar. Um, I mean, everyone knows what they look like, look like. Everyone knows what a crow looks like. But you look at a rook. Rooks are um, very peculiar crows. And also, as a obviously as a British person, you know. A rook to me is a very familiar bird that I see on a regular basis, but it's it's uniquely old world, so it's uniquely Eurasian from the the coasts of the Atlantic all the way to the coast of the Pacific. So people that live in the Americas or tropical Asia or Australasia or whatever, they're not going to be they're not going to know this bird. I presume to them it's going to be quite a. Well, I remember first seeing them. They're in Japan, aren't they? They are. Yes. Yeah, I remember first seeing them in in Tokyo. I was in a as a stopover. And I thought, oh, oh holy crap! They, they're they're quite a bit bigger than I thought they were going to be. I sort of knew they were going to be there, and much more robust, very large and robust birds. Well, that was fascinating, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a great story! So I'd never no, but I guess I'd never seen them before. Um, so you're right, being Australian. Well, it's the bare face that makes them look really unusual compared to other black crows other members of the genus corvus mm. and that's something that's always fascinated me I, I, i'm really really taken with the idea that animals modify their external anatomy through behavior and this that's that the, the rook is unlike other corvus crows and that it makes a living by probing by sticking its bill into sediment in order to get out you know invertebrates worm, uh, worms and insects and, and edible plants and um 
I've read, like I remember learning at quite an early age that the reason that the, the, the rook has got the bare face is because it's deliberately, it's repeatedly plunging its bill and face into sediment and it actually erodes its own feathers. As you know, feathers are prone to erosion and animals that, birds that, um, birds and other feathered animals that spend a lot of time on the ground because their wings and tail feathers tend to like hit the ground, they, they tend to have frayed, um, you know, damaged tips to their to their wings and, and tails and the the idea was that the bare face of the the rook is apparently caused by this abrasion it's like well is that true juvenile rooks have a fully feathered face and a fully feathered bill base as is typical for corvus crows and the adults have this this naked face but yeah it's not true because this this uh, idea that that feather erosion results in this appearance is not true because animals that have many many rooks today never probe their whole lives ones that have been kept in captivity their whole lives and ones that don't make just they don't ones that hang around zoos and eat nothing but picnic food and never probe in the ground at all um and yet they still undergo this ontogenetic change from having a fully feathered face to to a naked face and also this there's a distinct east asian form of rook Corbus frugilipus pastinator, um, which uh, has the fully feathered face and yet still engages in the probing behavior. So, yeah, hypothesis that's a, failed. That's a, that's a shame. It was much cooler. Shame. Yeah, it would be well, a shame. It would be much cooler if it was the. Yeah, it, well, it's it. interesting. Well, exactly. There's there's an article, there's an article about this specifically on Tetrapod version. Tetrapod. <laughs> A blog called Tetrabod Zoology that's on the internet. I've heard about it. There's a, uh-huh. on, te, on Tetsu version 2, there's an article about behavioral modification resulting in distinctive uh, feather anatomy. The rook is in there for that, for that reason. And I say, no, in actual fact, this isn't what, this isn't what explains the naked face and naked bill base. Bill base. There's a group of um, caracaform birds, that's relatives of kingfishers and, and so on, called motmots. And uh, nowadays you need to the Americas, but fossil ones known from Europe as well. And there are um, motmots that have um, long central paired rectrices, long tail feathers, and they have like what we call a racket tail morphology, um, where there's like just the, the barbs, naked barbs of the, those two feathers, and then um, fully, fully like feather, feathery, big feathery, like racket shaped tips. To these rectrices and it's used to be said that the motmots make in quotes make that anatomy themselves by deliberately stripping off their own um their, i'm using the wrong terminology here barbs uh so this is there's meant to be naked quills but then with expanded with barbs at the, the at the tip but again that's actually not true people have checked this out and the the barbs fall off the quills naturally leaving this like naked area so Maybe the motmots enhance it by preening, by like uh, repeatedly, um, you know, uh, uh, mouthing that part of the the tail. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> yeah. But then the one, the one, there is, there are definitely some examples where birds do modify their own feather anatomy. And in that article, the example I talk about is turkeys, where displaying male turkeys, we know what they do. You know, they fluff out all their feathers and they have all these all the um, display structures they have on their head and neck, they engorge them with blood. The snud, which is the dangling wattle thing, that like engorges and they're like wattles enlarge on their face and stuff. But at the same time as they do that, they droop their wings and they scrape their wingtips across the ground. And if they're on a hard surface like concrete, this makes a noise. It goes as they scuff their 
wing feathers across the ground. And of course, they wear down the feather tips. So turkeys that have been kept on hard surfaces, you'll notice that instead of having like normal pointed um, remiges, normal pointed wing feathers, they've got like blunt, blunted off ones that are like five, six centimeters shorter than they, than they should be. So, so we do know that birds can modify feather anatomy through behavior. Do you think that's um, something that's just happened since, since hard surfaces like concrete were invented? Or do you think that this is something that would have happened in well, um, the easy way to check wild that is turkeys. To, yeah, look at some images of wild turkeys because I do remember checking this out, but I can't remember what the answer was. Um, yeah, I don't know. Because any sort of scraping on, well, even moderately hard ground is going to have some sort of effect, isn't it? If you're doing it repeatedly. Mm. So presumably they would have at least frayed, quite frayed. Yeah, yeah. Tips. I mean, yeah. If, if you just if you just look at images of displaying male turkeys, you will often see that their their wingtips are in well pretty good shape. So so maybe it is a um, an artifact of being yeah being being on being on hard surface hard surfaces. Interesting. Uh, he says while googling. Yeah, googling makes great radio. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I'm seeing, no, I'm seeing some pretty, some pretty normal pointed, uh, uh, wing feathers here. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think it is an artifact, an artifact of captivity. And obviously domestic turkeys are over the top in terms of their, you know, display anatomy. Um, when we were preparing for the all yesterday's, um, well, the, the sort of promotional push associated with all the yesterdays. Memo was using, I don't know if he created it or if someone else did, but someone was using an image of a turkey, male turkey, you know, with all its like, full, in, in full regalia, all its feathers puffed out and its wattles on display and everything. And then showing like an x-ray picture that shows the actual core of the animal, the actual like skeletal soft uh, the actual skeletal outline obviously the two are completely different you know yeah. radically different and the immediate response to this from people is well hold on that's a that's a domestic turkey and that's been specially selected by people to look ridiculous and to have all this extra fat and all these you know if have people affected the anatomy of the feathers they have and so on well in actual fact no if you look at wild turkeys they're they're often obviously a bit slimmer, more muscular than uh, domestic ones. But in terms of the general the general vibe that we're talking about, in terms of how elaborate and ornamented they are, no, they are not that different. That stuff really is true of turkeys. Although, yeah. of course, yeah. Although we are talking about the fact that the birds have got their feathers, you know, fuzzed up, fluffed up, and everything. Yes, indeed. Uh, but I mean, dinosaurs would have done this occasionally as well. Sorry, non-avian dinosaurs. Dinosaurs other than turkeys. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the point's still true. Yeah. Oh, we drifted off um Corvids to turkeys, but we <laughs> um I think we should talk a little bit about the intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. So um, as clever as chimps. Could they figure out how to can they figure out how to open doors? If you made a little door for a for a um for a rook, would it would it be able to open it? I'm I'm pr I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure they could if they like, through through observation. I mean the the number of studies that people have done of um, putting various you know tests tests people have run on corvids um, demonstrate uh, a level of intelligence certainly on par with that of 
so-called higher primates, monkeys, monkeys and, and apes. But um, but there are interestingly there are some things that in in tests primates can understand the constraints of the, the well their own limitations that they can they, there's some things that they can get are things that corvids can't get. So I mentioned that case where uh, rooks can. They could understand that they that two of them needed to pull on different parts of a tray in order to pull the tray towards them, but they didn't understand that if there's only one of them doing this, that it has to wait until it's got a partner before it can complete the task. Whereas chimps seem to understand this; they seem to get that you need to have two animals to to do it. And some of the really amazing behaviours that have been um, that are now reasonably well known for corvids. I mean, you probably know about the sophisticated tool use and tool manufacture practiced by New Caledonian crows. They um they not only um you like they don't only pick things up and know how to you know they they won't just like pick up a stick and realize that oh I could use this to winkle a grub out of a hole they also will deliberately go to a plant pull off a, a, a twig and fashion it into a specific tool and they make like a bunch of tools that they carry with them from site to site amazing behavior you know nobody thought this was this this just this stuff just wasn't suspected say like thirty years ago but. That all sounds very, you know, similar to what we expect for primates. But it's been shown that the crows will do this even when they don't, even when they're not, um, they're not taught this by the crows. It's kind of like an instinctive, inborn thing. I'm not saying that makes it any less impressive, but it does kind of show that the the the, the sort of the, the way it works in the the crow's brain is is kind of different from uh, how it does in how it does in primates. Well, I guess the other the other thing that it could be is that crows just figure it out for themselves right or yeah <clears throat> so but you, you know better than i've read the literature but is that is that a possibility that they're just figuring it out by themselves individually it seems like a kind of, uh, it, uh how do you describe these things it's something that's kind of inborn in the crow because totally naive crows knew how to do these things and it uh, I, I can't. I can't explain the difference between knowing that they could just figure out for themselves versus it was an inborn thing, a, a, a simple response to a stimulus. But the the studies I, I read basically implied that it was a simple response to a stimulus. The same way that if you put an egg in front of a broody bird, it will sit on the egg, even if the egg is twenty times the size of the actual, you know, the egg, the egg of its own species. It's kind of like they. <laughs> Exist responding to that stimulus, and it seems to be the same. And if you, this has been done, have you ever seen this? People have done crazy things with. There's famous work been done on the behaviour of gulls, where you take their own eggs away, and then you you see what they'll still respond to. Will they sit on a square egg? Yeah, sure. It's <laughs> egg. Will they sit on an ostrich egg? Well, it's an egg. Why not? Um, and, and another thing where the, the white-headed gulls, the herring gull, lesser blackback gull, and so on, they've got this large red spot on the, the lower mandible and that is what we call a sign stimulus that's a a distinctive stimulus that juveniles can't help but respond to they'll peck at it because the the pecking at the bill then uh, is is a makes the adult regurgitate food for it so how far can you go with this how simple can this stimulus be and the baby will still peck at it and again it's like basically you can have like a piece of car that doesn't look anything like a gull's head but so long as it's got a red spot on the underside they will instinctively think that it's something they're meant to peck at and uh i guess the of... interesting thing here though is that not so much that the stimulus is simple but that the response is very complex right yeah 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 so so, so going yeah. off making a tool carrying it around that's all quite 
yeah. involved. It's not a but, simple response at all. No, no, that's right. So, so whenever, I mean, increasingly when people talk about tool use in humans, they now have to qualify it by saying that, well, in actual fact, you know, humans certainly aren't alone or unique in what they can do. And, and, and every year the number of, the number of tool using animals increases crazily. I mean, there, there are now tool using fish and quite a lot of birds, but then elephants, horses, tool use is documented in horses with the use of sticks and stuff used to groom themselves. And there's, there's, there's a paper that's in the works at the moment. And uh, I'm not going to tell you the name of the, uh, the, the group of animals involved, not publicly on the podcast anyway, that, that wouldn't be fair, but I'll, I'll tell you when we finish recording. Cause it's just, it's, it's really, really cool. So, uh, um, but yeah, crows obviously, and rooks. It, rooks are well known for for doing things like um, uh, using cars to break open nuts, and uh, yeah, lot, lot, lots of lots of neat stuff. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, using cars to break open nuts. This is not an inbuilt. Um, mm, this yeah. can't be an instinctual reaction, can it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe that you know. What what comes first here? Is it the the like the the instinctive uh, behavioural flexibility comes first, and then that can be adaptive when they're confronted with a new problem, and they because because what the the case of the the various crows that use cars to break open nuts and 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 mollusk shells did they is that an observational thing? Did they like see things get crushed by cars and then sort of put two and two together? Because uh, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, well, they must have, right? That's the way. That's the only way they could do it. Well, no, they they could have done it other ways. By maybe maybe the behaviour was present earlier in some of the form. Like maybe they um, saw stuff get crushed by big animals, and um, it was kind of uh, you know they took it from doing some other place there and. You can, you can imagine that, you know, crows, uh, rooks and other species often associate with deer and, and, and cattle and animals. So, and, and it's well known that they will follow, follow them as they eat insects and other animals that are disturbed. So, again, could you learn that, oh, these, if these animals run over here, they, they squash this mussel shell or nut or whatever. Um, I don't but, know. Total speculation. Yeah, but that was they were timing it with lights, weren't they, these crows? That's right. Yeah. So yeah. they had to learn the dual yes, yes. process of it anyway. Yeah, it wasn't rooks that was doing it. I think it was Asian jungle crows or something. But um, yeah, yeah. So the, the rook, I mean, the, the reason there's so much to say about it is not only is it like um, anatomically unusual compared to other crows, or at least it looks unusual in its adult stage, but also it's behaviorally different in that it's incredibly social, forming these like big... Uh, nesting aggregations called called rookeries, and uh, again, you know, very familiar in the British countryside. But um, but yeah, it's kind of a there's there's a certain amount of sociality in all corvids. Um, there are you know many groups that where you have group small bands hanging around that sometimes cooperate. Uh, well known for some of the like the New World jays and ravens and so on. Cooperation in ravens is very well known, especially where you have like juveniles that find a carcass and then go and recruit adult helpers to like scare other birds away that's that's a really cool thing that's been documented in ravens but these large aggregations of rooks you know can be hundreds of individuals that is a unique thing in corvids uh and uh makes this species very special i think do they make 
do they have more sophisticated social behaviour than other corvids, or not? My impression is that they is that they don't. I mean, their social behaviour is very complicated. As I said in the Tetrapod Zoology article, there's loads of uh, little nuances of well, there's some very subtle and some very obvious postural um, devices that they use to signal intentions and aggression and submissiveness and, and all this kind of stuff. But um, I, I, I don't get the impression from what I've read or seen that it's any more uh, complicated or, in quotes, sophisticated than what you see in other uh, Corvus crows. They all seem to be have, have this very sophisticated, very complicated body language and that is something really interesting to learn um that what the different signals mean i mean if you've if you've ever i've grown up like looking at books nico tinberg and these kind of books on animal behavior lots of stuff on gulls geese um things like ichneumon wasps and all manner of certain animals that have always been studied uh, in this respect so you get to know these different postures that mean different things and they are Mm, I was going to say remarkably consistent. They're not remarkably consistent, but there are some consistencies across the whole of birds. So certain poses that are adopted by, say, geese and ducks are not that different from poses that seem to mean similar things in, in passerines like crows. So what I'm saying to people who are interested in evolutionary history and diversity of birds and other feathered animals, other feathered dinosaurs, get to know some of these postures because... I don't think this is. Uh, I th we've certainly seen artwork where people have shown, um, you know, males displaying to females and animals coming up to each other and courting and that kind of kind of stuff. But um, yeah, some, so, some, yeah, let's have some examples of what what sorts of poses do we have for what sorts of things. Well, a very common thing that you see in um, a, a basically an, an aggressive posture it involves like stooping the stooping the body down, forming the neck into like a the best u-shape that you can obviously for a goose that's quite pronounced for a, for a corvid it's not so much and then having the the bill sort of uh, elevated and semi skyward that's called the full frontal uh, response and that's kind of like a come any closer to me and i'll smash you in the eyes that kind of thing mm. and then uh, drooping down wings raising up the tail fanning the tail lifting lifting the bill if the if the animal like presses itself to the ground that can be like a a submissive thing saying you know don't attack me i'm i'm maybe i'm gonna have sex with you or maybe i'm not dangerous to you um but it's <laughs> but lift, lifting the body up and doing kind of a similar thing and and flight intention movements are a, a, a thing that you see commonly in corvids and, and also fairly common in birds which means that um they, they have their wings folded up, but if you watch their wings, they just kind of like sort of flick them to the side or sort of like they kind of uncross their wingtips and then cross them again, flight intention movements. And it's kind of like I'm thinking about flying away, but I know I don't really need to. Um, something's going on. I'm not too happy about it. That kind of stuff is is common. And yeah, there, 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 are, lo there are loads more. Yeah. It'll be interesting to map them out on the, on the, um, yeah. the tree and see what, <clears throat> what things might have been inherited, what things might have been convergent, that sort of thing. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if anybody's actually done this kind of stuff within a phylogenetic context. Um, they probably have, because there is an, an enormous, there always has been, you know, historically, an enormous amount of interest in terms of what you can learn about bird evolution from the distribution of like behavior and, and postural and, uh, um, yeah, plumage characters.
But... Yeah, and I guess what would be interesting about this is obviously a, a lot of these signals are going to be to do with what you might do given sort of incipient versions of the behavior that was going to happen anyway. So sort of yeah. the pre, pre-flight thing. Yeah. You can imagine that evolving because that's the sorts of actions you do before you take off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? That's, people think that's how it emerged. Yeah, um, but then other ones are less clear, like the threat posture. I think the the U shaped neck showing the underside of the bill. Uh, I, I don't, I don't really see an obvious what 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 the obvious thing that's a precursor for. Some some of the some of these some of the postural signals sent by non-human animals are, um, yeah, not exactly intuitively. Um, it's not really obvious what they're, yeah, how they could have originated, and also they seem annoyingly similar to uh, to other signals that mean totally different things. So a common thing in animals that you you kind of alluded to it there is the fact that submissiveness involves displaying the throat or the belly, and this is present in archosaurs. We the crocodilians do this. Uh, we should also just say in passing that, that living crocs and alligators and gharials, they have a really sophisticated set of signals as well that include, you know, obvious dominance and submission and conciliation and, and even stuff like readiness to mate and stuff. Some of these signals are, 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 can be sent by females as, as well as males, really loads of behavioral signals sent by crocs. Um, and they have a signal where a big dominant individual, normally a big male goes past, they will raise their head up out of the water to, to, show, to show the neck. And this is well known in, you know, we know that wolves and other animals do this as well. I mean, always have to be careful in comparing mammalian body language to that of archosaurs. But, um, but yeah, but, but that's, it, seems, it seems odd that anything involving raising the neck is associated with aggression when, as we've just said, in other animals is often associated with a concilia- a submissiveness. So... Um, do things change once the armament changes? Once the like the things you use in fighting the space? Because what what are you going to be scared of if you're if like you've got an angry goose coming at you? Well, they can hit you with the wings, um, and some but some birds do obviously like you know open their wings to make themselves look bigger and more scary. But um, but once you've got like a big scary bill, does does do the signals change? Um, yeah. Or does just the fact that you're seeing the underside make them look taller, like you're looking up at them or something? I mean, mm. that's that's quite a stretch too, isn't it? Because they, they lower the body, don't they? Yeah, yeah. This is something I'd, I'd really need to, you know, I'd like to know much more about before I could say anything with confidence about it. But, uh, but yeah. to anyone interested and certainly anyone who's thinking of doing any, anything new in the depiction of extinct animals... It's well worth looking at these postures and seeing what you can, uh, yeah, what sort of things you can actually glean from body language. What does an animal mean um, from its from its posture? And yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Well, and the fact that the fact that crocs have <clears throat> so, many, so many really, you know, really cool, sophisticated things, and obviously birds do. It's going to be a given that in extinct archosaurs, that stuff's going to be all over the place. Indeed, yeah. It'd be interesting to see which things overlap and which which ones don't if there is any overlap um yeah the old phylogenetic bracket yeah okay let's move on have you got any twitter questions yeah I've got a couple here i can't see what's tweeted at you though i've got one that was sent to both of us from ivan kwan who i've uh, probably pronounced his name incorrectly 
um, when are we continuing with the Crocodilla series on on Tetsu? So there's been, I think, I think six parts so far to a series of articles about the crocodiles, not all crocodilians, just the crocodiles of the world. And I've kind of tried to been work. I've been working my way through the the kind of pattern of the the phylogeny. <clears throat> excuse me, through the pattern of the phylogeny. And I most recently got as far as uh, the African crocs, the Nile croc and the, the so-called the Sucus croc, this little one that was always included in uh, the, the desert-dwelling thing that was included in Crocodilus niloticus for, for a long time, but now seems to be totally distinct. Um, so what have I got left? Well, I've still got all of the American crocs to go through. So the, uh, well, the American croc, Crocodilus acutus, and the, the, the Cuban croc and Orinoco croc and so on. And um, I've pretty much done the text. I was looking at it the other day. There's another, basically another two articles there that, uh, that need to be done. As for when I'll do them, well, I don't know, sometime over the next several months, there's, there's always... <laughs> Sometimes between now and when you die, is what I think I, the answer I, is. There's so many things that I've, I've been promising since. Tetrabods already started in 2006, and the number of stuff, the number of things that have been promised and uh, I haven't delivered on and and writing like writing that rook article that's easy just sit down do a little that's like a, you know less than an hour's in terms of like writing and editing pictures and stuff but something like a, a a lengthy series on all the crocs of the world and making sure you've got to check all the relevant literature and yeah, especially if it's something that's quite an active research area when new papers are coming out that you may have missed which which is the case in crocs there's quite a few recent papers on croc phylogeny diversity and uh, genetics um having to chase all that up this is why the Toxodont series, you know, obscure South American neogene mammals, and uh, many, many others have done over the span The fact that they're done over the span of months to years is uh, there's just no other way around it. Let me ask you a question: Have you ever finished a series? I have. Yes, um, Vespa bats, Vespa bats, the Vespertilionid microbats. I think that was a twenty-part series. Yeah. And the only and because um, oh, there's also the Toads series. The, 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 I didn't I, think I, you finished the Toad series. No, 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 I haven't finished the Toad no, series. Haven't. No. Uh, I haven't finished uh, Petrels. There's like mm-hmm. one or two articles left to go. But because um, what happens with those is is you th- there's this annoying pressure to like produce new blog material all the time. You have to because, you know, I have to produce, I have a mini number of articles. I'm supposed to produce like four articles a month. That's part of the contract with Scientific American. And also you need new stuff coming in to just keep your, your hits bumping up because people are so fickle. They'll stop looking if there's something, if there isn't something new after like two days. You know, the hit numbers of hits plunges down to <laughs> to just a few thousand a day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Darren, Darren. So, so you're inclined. If you've been working for like you know weeks or months on a long series of articles about all the toads of the world, it's like, well, I've finished the first five parts. Let's get them out. Well, once you've published them, what about the remaining twenty parts? So I haven't finished those. I'll come back to them later. But there's always bits of that series that are really hard to complete, either because the text is quite complicated to write. There's some unresolved controversy you're not sure how to deal with, or because finding the images is a nightmare it's, or impossible. There are no images of some of these animals. So um, what tends to happen is, yeah, go, I start publishing stuff, get to a stage in the middle where I run out of, um, come, up, come up against this problem, 
and then have to delay and then don't ever have the time to go back and finish it. So that's why temnospondyls and toads and petrels and uh, quite a few other things have never been, and, and, and this croc series have never been completed because uh, the time involved, and toxodonts, the time involved in just sitting down and doing this. When you have so little time already, I mean, I, I try and make a living as a you know, book author and research, research scientist and obviously busy all the time with the kids and stuff anyway. So, um, and the podcasts and the yeah. podcasts and, uh, and all the episodes of American Dad I've been watching lately. It's just, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I, I don't know why you, you promised to, uh, to complete these. I think you should say there's going to be a series on this and give no notion of well when it will be complete. That has kind of happened. And with the with the Temnospondyls series, there's this big controversy over where Lysamphibians, that's living amphibians, where they fit with respect to the Temnospondyl radiation. And obviously you have a group of researchers that maintain, and I think this is actually the, the hypothesis that I personally feel most confident about. They think that Lysamphibians are deeply nested within Temnospondyls and are specifically part of a temnospondyl clade called the dysrophoids. So I started on dysrophoids, but then, well, there's this whole mess about lysamphibian origins. If I start writing about that, I've got to summarize a ton of literature where you've got very disparate opinions. And uh, never had time to do that, but had loads more text that's from other parts of the series that is finished. So in the end, what I decided to do, and yeah, I did this over last month, didn't I? I just started taking completed bits from elsewhere in the series and publishing them, which means that we're no longer going through the Temnospondyl family tree in kind of a phylogenetically logical order. We're just like taking groups that I think, oh, I'm ready to talk about Tremadosauroids, I'm ready to talk about Tremembrachids, I'm ready to talk about Archegosauroids. Um, yeah, maybe that's the way to go with some of these things. People don't necessarily need phylogenetic continuity, do they? I don't think they even notice a lot of the time, so... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> As you're, read, as you're reading Article 9 here in the Toad Series, please make sure you go back and read the receipt bring you up to speed. I assume that readers did do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Um, I, think, I think it's helpful when you're doing something like that for your own structure, right? So you don't yeah. just feel like you're writing random stuff all the time. But um, yeah. I, don't, yeah. I don't think as, as part of a, a... I don't think for your audience it matters nearly so no. much. Yeah, right. Well, the aim is to get representative coverage of everything. Um, I, every, every year I see, you know, how well have I done and, and then find out that the number of articles is massively dominated by birds, dinosaurs, mammals, mega mammals, and like rodents and lysamphibians and lizards never get their due. It's just they, they just can't. They just can't win. It's just not fair. I think that worrying about this is a little bit like me worrying about left and right facing dinosaurs in my pictures. <laughs> that's easy though because you can just you can just flip them in photoshop or whatever. <laughs> and i do but and then i do. but then i have to do a statistical analysis am i still on track am i thinking that i have because you know i think i've got a, a left side bias sometimes sometimes i think i've got a right side bias and i right. overcompensate now i'm not on obviously not on par with you as an artist but when i draw i definitely have a left hand bias animals are always facing to the left you know 
Well, in Photoshop now, obviously, I just I flip things. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, you know why that is. I think that the left hand bias is happening is because um, all the skeletals of stuff, yeah. dinosaurs, yeah. Def particular. But, well, I the think standardized the, dinosaurs. They're all left hand, left facing. Yeah, but that that is that is definitely a contributing factor. But I know for a fact that I also did this. I did this as a child, even before I saw my first Gregory Paul illustration, because I think it's right handedness. Because it's easy to start on the left and draw and draw flowing lines to the right. Because remember, one of the reasons why drawing dinosaurs is so aesthetically pleasing is because in the era of the dinosaur renaissance, dinosaurs aren't fat bricks. They're like flowing, flowing wavy lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. this, this is why there are so many people interested in the theatre that are involved in dinosaur research. <laughs> 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 because he says cryptically it's because think about this it's like flowing watch what i'm doing on my hands see this is like flowing yeah, that, that's good yeah. radio darren that's great radio <laughs> you get what i'm talking about yeah so going back to tetsu series the only way to get like something like vespa bats of the world finished is to complete the whole series in you know have it written up in word and, and with all your illustration stuff before you publish the first one and that's the only way i was able to the only series i've completed vespa bats it's the only way i did it i did the finished the whole series before i published a single part yes and therein lies the lesson and therein lies the lesson and that's how a bill becomes a law isn't it exactly yeah exactly. okay so well that went on for quite a while Sorry. um no that's good that's good so we we can do a wrap-up topic. Avatar, do you think? Why not? Even though, like, uh, we kind of already touched on it last time for some reason. Don't know why. Well, there's probably more to say about it, so let's yeah. do it anyway. It um, wasn't last time, was it? It was like two. It was that crazy rambling movie-themed one we did like two podcasts ago. It was, and hopefully, no one listened to that one. So oh, I'm sure they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um. Yeah. So yeah, let's do Avatar. Uh, where shall we start with Avatar? Um, well, we should keep it like Tetsu themed, shouldn't we? So, so we mostly want to talk about yeah, xenobiology and yeah, we want to talk about the xenobiology. I think definitely. Um, yeah, so they made a bit, they made a fairly serious effort with xenobiology in um, Avatar, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. Um, of course, everything happened to be massively convergent on Earth earth style animals but even so you had things like their breathing and their mouths were separated which seems like a more logical arrangement than has happened on life yeah. on earth yeah it's true and things had lots of things had two sets of four limbs didn't they is that right yeah they went yeah that's right they did go for like a hexapodal body plan uh, although as with all these things the the side this this um i don't want to say sensible decisions but the, the, some of the like good decisions they made about creatures had to be toned down or modified due to audience expectations so we and and also we have the problem here in that we don't know um we don't know anything about the evolutionary history of the assemblage of everything on pandora and what I'm about to say assumes that the history of evolution ran in the way we expect it to and, and kind of the way it did in this planet, as in, you know, evolution by natural selection, blah, blah, blah. But as we did t 
touch on last time, there is this possibility that creatures and environments and flora on Pandora are not naturally evolved. They may actually be engineered. So the Na'vi, these human-like creatures, well, they are obviously so similar to humans. They're like primate-like. And we know there are primate-like arboreal animals on Na'vi because we see these things called uh, pro prolemurus, I think, Sigourney's Weaver character. Sigourney mm. Weaver's character. Cryptic. Cryptic. Uh, yeah, prolemurus. And they are hexapodal, but the bases of their two more anterior limbs are fused. They're fusing their limbs together. So are they? is that a deliberate hint towards the idea that the Na'vi are indeed part of a primate, a group of primate-like animals on Pandora? And the reason that the Na'vi are uh tetrapods rather than hexapods is because they fused two limb pairs together is that is that what they're getting out there or did they just give the prolemurus like sort of a skin web between the two anterior limb pairs because it looked cool and that's probably the answer <laughs> no no i don't think it is i remember looking at that and thinking that's definitely what they're hinting at that's how there was some mm -hmm. that was the little nod to yeah they're not the navi aren't um aren't hexapodal and why yeah but then so i was i was trying to go somewhere with what i was saying about um this decision decisions being modified due to audience expectations i think i remember reading bear in mind avatar was sort of 2010 that's that's years ago i can barely remember any of this but did wasn't there wasn't it said that originally the Navi were far more alien, that they looked freakish, more like the other creatures on the planet. But because they kept on tweaking the Navi to make them look more pleasant, more attractive um, to human viewers, because obviously they wanted them to bond with them and also maybe to find some of them hot. So, yeah, indeed. Like, I mean, so, so yes. They, yeah. So they end up just being blue, naked, naked blue people things even though they're like three meters tall and have four toes i think but um and i think they're they're four fingers because because like, the, the, like the simpsons like the simpsons ah i see what you did there um they're but, small and yellow yeah so the, the navi that we know best because we get to see many details of their anatomy which jake in the obviously we first see jake's all the details of his his uh, avatar body when he's first put into it in the early on in the movie you know the the the, the avatars are meant to be hybrids aren't they they must be genetic hybrids between navi dna and i'm pretty sure jake specifically refers to dna and uh, you know not some other i don't know some other chemical combination they would have been, they would have discovered that wouldn't be dna but some other molecule um they're meant to be combinations of that and uh and human dna so Oh, actually, I missed that. I didn't hear yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So that's why, because like one of the first things you see is a close-ups of his feet, and they make a point of showing. Well, those are like just giant blue human feet. But the whole point is he's not a Navi. That 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 avatar body rather is not a, is not a Navi body, is it? It's like he says DNA mixed with that of the natives. I think. Hmm. Um, so. Well, that's pretty stupid, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, this really annoys me with all these things. Like the the notion that aliens would have d DNA that was even remotely compatible with ours is so utterly ridiculous that what ha has to happen is all the nerds have to say they were engineered, and that's boring. Yeah. I just come on, just 
they don't have DNA. Stop that. Stop that's, that, movie makers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, well, I mean, they must know that stuff. They must, because how can you read anything about biology and not pick that up? But I don't know. It's, it, I this think is all... one of the things that writers are obsessed with. They, are, they think that this is what the social interest in science is, is they think it's genetics. It's the nurture versus nature thing. And what are we really? Um, and it's all got to do with DNA. Is that, are we just our DNA? Blah, 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 blah. And they're just obsessed with this and they hammer away at it. And they can't leave it alone even when it makes no <laughs> sense. Oops. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yes, rant over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. I, yeah, I've noticed that in the children's programs and adverts on TV, you you hear people say stuff like that. They say it's in our DNA, or the answer is yeah, as, as if yeah, yeah, yeah. It's become sort of the new soul almost. You know, yeah, yeah. Now that we don't believe in souls anymore, now we mm. believe in DNA, and it's it's not that sort of thing, people. Mm. And it's very annoying that writers can't break out of these patterns that they use over and over again. When they don't even seem very necessary to the plot, you know. Yeah. I mean, they didn't. They didn't need to be hybrids. Why did they need to be hybrids? Uh, again, that is explained, but I can't remember how. But it's very easy to imagine the because I didn't even remember that it was true. It's very easy to imagine the film where they're not. They just they are completely different. It's just they found a way of um, transferring consciousness into their um, into their thinking apparatus. Yeah. Which I can believe with advanced tech and technology, you know, once they've figured out how their how their brains work. Yeah. Um, figuring out how to get something in there. Um, so I, I don't know. <clears throat> I think that there's lots of places where they could just they could just leave it alone. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> and they did the so, same thing in Prometheus, which you know, yeah. yeah, let's not go there again. Yeah, yeah. but was, so so I think that the Nar, as I said in that Tetrapod Zoology article, the the Navi are easily the lamest creatures on on Pandora in terms of how they're portrayed. They're just just giant blue people, and whether they needed them or not, you know, there's arguments can be made both ways, and I, I don't really know. It's it's difficult well, to say because because we because we aren't you and I and many of our listeners are not the the like key demo are they 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 we're not the sort of they're not they're not trying to appeal to millions of people that want to come and see speculative zoology and bizarre animals they're just trying they're just trying to appeal to the people that want to watch a watch a movie with a love story in it oh well and, that, uh, but that's not true you're going to see i mean the the bizarre animals are a huge draw for avatar because if people just want to go see a movie with a love story in it, you can just make a movie with a love story in it. It's a lot cheaper. Yeah, but people. You, yeah, but then the response to that is, could you make a love story with tentacled hexapod aliens? I don't no, know. No, you can't. And I do think that this is why they had to... Yeah. I do think that there was a concession that had to be made there. If they did want the aliens to be the... Well... Or the alien-looking people to be... Yeah. But... To be sympathetic. But I do think they could have done a better job Oh, I agree. I agree. I also um, think uh, some some of the other creatures. Okay, so the Navi, these humans, yeah, they're they're, they're kind of lame. But then some of the others are pretty pretty not so good as well. The the giant di dire horses, dire horses. That doesn't sound right because I'm thinking of dire wolves. Um, and yeah, I, of course, do. I yes, I do watch Game of Thrones. Yeah. Um, well, let's just let's just call them avatar horses. They I'm are pretty horses, sure they're called they? dire horses. Yeah, dire horses. They are. I mean, they just 
did you remember do you remember he-man and the masters of the universe <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well so he-man was uh, invented to sell toys as everybody knows and the the characters in the cartoons look exactly like the toys and obviously yeah. because that's they they invented the toys first and then they did the animated things like to match to match the toys like transformers so i understand um but there's some things that were made as toys that I don't think ever actually appeared in the cartoon. And one of them is this big kind of armoured sort of robot type horse thing that He-Man is meant to ride on. There's also like an evil one that belongs to Skeletor. But if you look at that, I can't remember its name. I'm going to Google it and see what happens. That is, <laughs> that's the Dire Horse from Avatar, except the Dire Horse has got... Um, um, obviously six legs, although six legs that seem to be pretty pointless because uh, the, uh, the the front two pairs like run at exactly the same yeah. um, rate and stuff. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, die horses. I thought they were rubbish. They're just they're just big giant big horses with six legs. Yeah. And there's, there's there's the fact they've got like anteater heads and they eat nectar. That's an interesting spin, but. Um, yeah, but that's kind of what. But horses kind of have anteater heads. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just didn't look that different, did they? <laughs> no, not different enough. So, no. so I th- so any animals that are in in um, xenobiology or speculative zoology, any animal that you you got. To, I say this to people all the time: if you're going to create an animal, you've got to make sure it's not obviously based on something that we know or something that you know we can find out about because. It's, it will, people will know immediately what you've inspired it on. And as soon as it's obvious what you've inspired it on, it kind of destroys its, what do you call it? I don't know, independent sort of the credibility it has. Yeah, um, it's independent life. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. So I, so I don't like dinosaur reconstruction. Dinosaur reconstructions where people are making the animals look plausibly bird-like are fine, but when people use the, sp- the color scheme specific to living species um that doesn't work because well i can tell you just based it on a helmeted guinea fowl or a, 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 a scarlet macaw or something and that that is happening um yeah but i tell you why that is happening and um it's not so much that it's difficult to imagine something else but when you actually go to paint it yeah, it's incredibly difficult to paint something straight from your head. Sure. In fact, yeah. it's virtually impossible to do it as well as you would paint from life. I I totally get that. Yeah, but which I is why get... which is why those guys like Knight and a bunch of others um, used models. Yeah. Um, but even so, modeling something that doesn't exist. So they used a two-step process, which I think improved their paintings, and they do have great, you know, shading and feeling of weight and stuff, which I think is missing in a lot of modern modern paintings um including my own because i don't paint from models but i i understand why people are doing this and because it looks so much more realistic and so much it's got that sort of depth of realism you can paint directly from a photograph or or life and transpose it onto something else well it's annoying if you know it already but um it does it makes getting that I don't want to say grit, but the sort of a little bit of randomness that happens in well, the reality. nuances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think about this a lot. I mean, I, obviously, I don't paint, but when I draw, 
reconstructions of fossil animals. Um, most recently, I was thinking about this when I did a, a montage of Ornithischian heads, and I wanted to convey the idea that the, uh, they're all showy animals with crests and horns and things, and the idea is they should have patterns that are associated with the fact that the structures on their skulls are linked to display of some sort. And I think that to do that, it's, it helps to have some idea of, um, in the, the, the bad word to use, but of the rules that in evolution, in uh, uh, living animals, are kind of linked to certain habitats, lifestyles, and signals. And you'll notice, if you look at a group of animals, there's kind of like variations on a theme where certain patterns of like bars, spots, stripes, dark areas versus light areas, there are, there are some approximate, you know, consistencies that are linked to where an, where an animal lives, the habitat it uses, or how it dis, what its kind of flash markings are, you know, how it displays to predators or to members of its own species. And I think it's a lot to ask because that's a lot to learn. And, you know, and I can only, I sort of only think I've got a bit of a handle on that through obviously, you know, years of like le learning about living animals. But I think if you had a rough handle on that, then that does help in getting some idea as to what sort of hues and patterns would be plausible for an extinct animal. Yeah, but I think we do have, it's doubly complicated by um, phylogenetic signals being a big mess there. So obviously we're looking at mammals for a lot of large terrestrial animals, but mammals are very different to dinosaurs in terms of what coloration is easily evolved, what's available to them, and also their, their vision and all sorts of things. Yeah. And their social um, cues and behaviours might yeah. be quite different as well. So it's very difficult to tease all that out. And you know, I think it's probably impossible in the end, but I, I, I don't disagree that there are some patterns to yeah. be, yeah. But, to but be in... drawn out. But I guess one other thing I'd say is there are sort of rules to how animals pattern themselves, or not rules, but yeah, rules, I would say, of how patterns uh, come, come to be through ontogeny, which I don't think anyone understands that well. And certainly artists don't. I don't. Mm, mm. It's something I should know about, but it's a very complicated to topic. And I don't think that um, many people have got the skills. I, d I don't have the I don't have the um, the knowledge of developmental biology and that sort of thing to really come to grips with that. Um, what are you talking about? Just the way juveniles have different patterns and colors from adults? No, I mean, literally how patterns are made. Like, how do you how do how do stripes stay stripy? How do they not get messy? You know, how oh, does the yeah, skin? Yeah. How do the skin cells know what? How do the hair follicles know what color to be? Um, how how um, tight can patterns be? You know, because some birds seem to have incredibly um, finely delineated patterns on them. Mm. Um, and and how does that come to be? And what's actually possible? And I think it's very difficult to to know this stuff. And I think this comes out in lots of things like hexagonal patterns and how, because obviously you can paint something that looks too regular, it looks fake, right? Um, but it's difficult. But then some regular patterns don't look fake because we see them on on living animals. Yeah. Um, and but I don't know, I don't know the rules of that. What are, what are the rules? How do they? What well, sorts of 
patterns are possible, what aren't, mm. what sort of underlying patterns are driving the actual patterns we see. It's all very, very complicated, which I, is why, I, getting back to the original point, people are copying from living animals because yeah. trying to make this stuff up is incredibly hard. I don't know that anybody does know it well enough to really answer the questions that you're posing there, but there are some really interesting insights. Do you, do you remember the swimming giraffe paper I did with Don Henderson? I or do, you may, yeah. may be aware of it. Well, um, he created a CG model of a, of a giraffe, and it, and it could have just been you know, a, a mesh model of a giraffe. But for fun, to, in order to make it look good, he wanted to replicate the hexagonal pattern. And he actually, being Don Henderson, he actually, we should say this isn't the famous artist Don Henderson. This is the famous mathematical famous. paleontologist scientist uh, Don, Don Henderson. Famous uh, artist Doug Henderson. Oh, Doug. Sorry, I was thinking D. 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 Henderson. Yeah, D. Yeah. People get people get D, here. D. Henderson. They get confused. Okay, so well, Doug and Don, so, Don sound quite similar. Don. Yeah, Don. Yeah. Donald. Donald Henderson. So Don Henderson. He created this um, uh, um, bit of software that well, he, he wrote. I don't know. He wrote an algorithm. Put it in CSI terms, and he uh, basically invented a way of like wrapping around hexagonal pattern around a, the the shape of the giraffe, and created what I think is a pretty plausible looking CG pattern. And um, he based it on a program he had written in order to um, replicate the distribution of non-overlapping scales or scoots. Some people prefer to call them scoots, but whatever non-overlapping scales on the bodies of dinosaurs, and there is a mathematical predictability to that kind of pattern, which means that because we infer that color patterns in scaly animals typically follow the distribution of, you know, the way the scales are arranged on the body, there are possibly a few um, guidelines from that as to like how patterns can be arranged around limbs and where you would expect spots and stripes and things. Um, check it out. It's an appendix in the swimming giraffes, um, paper. So that's like one thing to keep in mind. Then we also yeah. have the fact that we've, we've actually got these really good skin impressions from hadrosaurs, horned dinosaurs, and a few others. And we know what the distribution of ornamented versus non-ornamented scales is. There's this paper by, I think it's by Chris Bell, works on hadrosaurs. And um, yeah, he showed how the two species of the Asian versus the North American Sorolophus were different in terms of like the ornamentation of their skin. So does that make an ornament? Does that make a difference in terms of like how you expect their uh, skin to be to be patterned? And then there's also it's in mammals and birds. People have spoken about climatic control on how complex patterning and hue is because um, it's been argued that in animals that have really short pelages, short coats or short feathery coverings, they can have really complicated. Um, stripes and spots and things because as soon as you get really long hairs or feathers it's not possible to maintain the close relationship between pigmented hairs that you need so like for example yeah, zebras they all get mixed up yeah yeah so zebras have got really short fur and they have obviously really tight striping but as soon as zebra type horses move to cool zones we have these extinct zebras from the far south of africa and also from the far north and also horses across Asia, cool parts of Asia and so on, it seems that they can't maintain the striping. It's, the striping is only possible where, uh, where the coat is really short, and it can be short because the animals are living in really tropical places. So I don't know. There's just a, there's a few things. There's a, there's a few possible rules that may have some influence on um, what is and is not plausible. 
No, I agree. I think there probably are lots of rules um, that we could tease out if we had the expertise in lots of these things, you know, the mathematical rules, the developmental biology, the chemistry, all this. But the problem is it's so cross-domain that... Yeah. Uh, and I've already spent all this time learning how to paint. I don't have time to go into all that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's so it's, it's much easier to just make it up. Yeah. <laughs> well, well no, it's easier. That's my point. It's easier to copy from living animals. Well, there's that, fa that famous 1987 article by Greg Paul where he says... Um, uh, color is the most asked about, least important, and least knowable aspect of uh, paleo art. I mean, obviously, the least knowable thing may or may not be changing depending on who you talk to. But yeah, he says that you just do what looks right to fit in terms of the environment that you've illustrated. So, yeah, but I, you know, he says least important, but well, according to who? I mean, oh, he means yeah, he means in terms of like science points, doesn't he? In terms of like the, the shape and the musculature of the animals. That's what he's getting at. Yeah, but that's sort of like predefining what he finds important. Well, because if you ask what people are interested in, then people are hugely interested in the color, aren't they? Yeah, but it, it, I, I think I, I I understand what you're saying, but I see his point as well. Given that people have given that there are scientists who have given the okay to reconstructions where the animals lack key muscles, you know, muscles that are common to all tetrapods. There are dinosaur reconstructions where the animals lack muscles that every tetrapod has and yet we know that the experts have spent hours and hours dallying over where the animal should be gray gray or green it's like uh come on that's the point yeah yeah there's uh, yeah i agree we but i think in some ways that comes that's encompassed in least knowable you know yes, it's yeah, not yeah, a yeah, yeah. and for those people who are listening to this and are thinking why aren't they talking about the uh the data from feathers, which is supposed to actually tell you what colours fossil animals were, this this is now it's now controversial as to whether those uh, colours really do represent the in life colours. Yeah. yeah, and surprise, surprise, you have to know a lot about uh, chemistry and the fossilization mm -hmm. process to understand what even understand the controversy and what's yeah. actually going on there, which I don't. Yeah. So yeah, the colours may be artifacts of. Uh, the taponomic processes, what's happened to what's happened to the fossils after death. We were talking about Avatar and we seem to have wandered a long way away away from that. But uh No, that's good. That's good because mm -hmm. I think that was more interesting than what we would have said about Avatar. Um, <laughs> I like the Banshees and the Great Leonopteryx. I thought they were pretty cool. Yeah, um, yeah, either I mean I, I we don't want to be down on the sorts of things that were done in Avatar because I think it was a more serious attempt at xenobiology and there were lots of good animals in it. Yeah. The fact that they had to make compromises with the um, with the humanoids and and that they had a giant horse in it, I think that's not really a fair look on. And a luck dragon, yeah. luck dragon. <laughs> well, the, the viper wolves I have in mind, the luck dragons. I said that last time. No. Have you seen yeah. the, um, the the extra nine minutes of Avatar? It was re-released at the cinema with an extra nine minutes. It's now out on Blu-ray, I think. Mm. And um, there's some extra creatures in that because there's a there's a hunt scene where the um, <laughs> the Navi. I was going to say Avataronians, but <laughs> the, the blue meow meow people are riding on banshees and they're hunting these kind of. They're kind of hard to describe. They remind me of the the um, the reek, which is the it's kind of which which is itself based. It's an animal from Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Cloonies. It's based on Placerius, the Dicynodon. It's kind of like yeah. a heavy set. Bullesque 
Plasirius-esque kind of horned creature with a with a weird sort of humanish face which ruins it um well in Ava- in the extra nine minutes of avatar they've got like a whole like herd of those that they're hunting um but i can't remember any other creatures there's a really disturbing scene with sute which uh i'm glad that i'm glad they didn't include that in the final movie again i know the film kind of a bit too well maybe maybe more than you do i don't know but uh, I, you do definitely i i i have only seen it once oh right yeah i, I saw know. it in the theater and that's <laughs> yeah. oh okay well I saw it a few times at the cinema alone. It's, um, See, uh, so clearly you like it. I mean, it's that's what I I'm enjoy saying. it. I think, yeah, I, think I enjoy the, watching um, it. I the plot annoyed me too much. The the artistic arc of the whole thing um, of being yeah Pocahontas in space just really uh, <laughs> I couldn't yeah. I couldn't stand it. I would I would I would watch it chopped up into bits like the the scenes with the animals. I think. And I have done a bit of that. Um, so, yeah, the, the animals are the bit I enjoy about it, but I can't sit through the film again. That's why I haven't watched it again. I can't. I've, uh, I've got I've a lower tolerance for bad films than you do. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we've actually run quite a bit. I was going to say, I'm, I'm resisting the temptation to say anything else because because yeah. otherwise we have, we'll... Uh, we should, yeah, we should yeah. wrap it up. We can, say, we can talk about Avatar again. I'm sure it'll come up again and again. Well, it um, will. If, they, if they've got two sequels coming out, it's, uh, which they have, yeah. it's uh, unavoidable. Yeah. yeah. I just saw okay. Iron Man 3 the other day. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. But I haven't Did... seen Star Trek Into Darkness yet. Sorry, what? Nothing. Oh. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Okay. Oh, do we want to mention the new book? Well, that's up to you. I think. Well, I think. I think it's teasers, breadcrumbs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, it's, have we said what it's about yet? Mm, I think everyone mm, probably has guessed. Yeah, mm, anyone seriously interested? But I don't know. I think. I think it's honestly best to just let people know that the three of us have got something in the works, and not to say what it's about, because we want to. We want to drum up this kind of because because they're going to be thinking. Well, all yesterdays was awesome. Like so, yeah. it's in the vein of all yesterdays, but it's somewhat different. It does concern. It's, it's zoologically themed, but I, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't say any more than that. Yeah, I would say, and but I would say that it ha- we've actually got a substantial portion of it done. So we're actually moving along at a cracking pace. Yeah, and in fact, what we're going to do is. We'll probably slow it down so it's because we're going for a launch in um october or november so it'll be a long tease <laughs> <laughs> um okay so uh where do they go for you on the interwebs uh, i run a blog called tetrapod zoology which is currently hosted at scientific american i tweet at at, at. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I feel like I take on the whole empire myself. Um, at at Zoo, um, Dak, the most useless character in the Star Wars movies, the the proper Star Wars movies, not the prequels, obviously. Um, there's a Facebook, there's a Tetrapod Zoology Facebook page. If you're interested in what we do, there's a book called Tetrapod Zoology Book One, which you'll, is which is available from all the good digital retailers and from the crappy ones as well. And we also have a book called All Yesterdays, which you should definitely get a hold of. Maybe buy a few copies, give them yeah. to people you know. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, find me at 
johnconway.co, where you'll find links to my impossibly spelled Twitter and Facebook accounts. Um, uh, there's a big donate button on the Tetsu uh, blog, which is people have been pressing, which is great, but people should press it even more. <laughs> <laughs> so you go to tetsu.com, press that big donate donate button, makes us happy. Look, if we could earn like not even that much, we'd we'd probably bump this up to once a week, right? If it became financially well, like, part of our job, we'd do yes, it. yes. When you say not that much, I mean, d- do we need to tell people how little mo- how, how, how little money we're talking about, um, or not? Let's just say we'd probably both be willing to do it for minimum wage. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, if we could make minimum wage doing this, we'd both happily do it once a week. Yeah. So there yeah. you go. That's how little it takes. Um, I think that's it, isn't it? That's good. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well. Um. Whenever we do it next time, which till, just seems to be then. completely random these days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not silly juice. It's necessary juice. <laughs>